From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The worldwide movement against racism keeps moving on, especially today, Juneteenth, marking June 19, 1865, when the U.S. military showed up in Texas to free enslaved blacks, more than two years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. For many in the streets today, the holiday is an historic reminder of the failure of the law to protect black people. The Metropolitan Police Department does not create safety. They are agents of violence and harm. As a result, I'm calling for the council to defund the Metropolitan Police Department. Saying Black Lives Matter or praising empty performative gestures while ignoring our demands and needs is also not the answer. And the movement is forcing an interrogation of capitalism and violence. For this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, we speak to Erica Ramirez of the Auburn Seminary. We are being asked as citizens to see that it's valid for police to use batons or tear gas and to mistreat protesters on the suggestion that they have done some sort of harm to commerce or property. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Former Atlanta police officer Garrett Rolfe turned himself in on Thursday to face a total of 11 charges, including felony murder, in connection with last week's shooting death of Rayshard Brooks at a Wendy's parking lot. At a news conference on Wednesday, Fulton County District Attorney Paul J. Howard said that Rolfe fired the fatal two shots as Brooks was running away, then kicked Brooks as the wounded man lay dying. At the critical point of the shooting, what the evidence shows that he was some 18 feet, three inches away, his back was turned. And, uh, and I believe a reasonable person would conclude that he was not an immediate threat at that time. It was also revealed this week that Rolf was reprimanded for past police misconduct, including for failing to report that he had shot and critically wounded someone. The global protest movement against police terror and racism continued with international momentum this week when Philonis Floyd, brother of George Floyd, killed by Minneapolis police last month, urged the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva to help black people in America to fight racist attacks like that experienced by his brother. I hope that you would consider establishing an independent commission of inquiry to investigate police killings of black people in America and the violence used against peaceful protesters. More on his testimony later in the show. And there are scores of other victories for this movement this week, including Philadelphia is reducing funding for police by more than $33 million. Portland, Oregon cut $27 million from the police. New York's police commissioner announced that he was disbanding the anti-crime unit a plainclothes team responsible for egregious incidents of shootings and other abuse. A statue of the murderous colonizer Juan de Anate was removed from its pedestal by city officials in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque also announced that unarmed social workers, not officers, will respond to certain 911 calls. 
in Los Angeles, the Courage Campaign and Black Lives Matter are joining forces to hold that city's district attorney, Jackie Lacey, responsible for the 608 people killed by LAPD under her watch. President Trump signed an executive order on Tuesday encouraging changes in policing, and though the order will have little impact, observers know that he would not have even done this much if not for protests. And then finally, on Capitol Hill, the U.S. Senate introduced Wednesday their version of police reform legislation, which uses federal grant money to only quote-unquote discourage the use of chokeholds and no-knock warrants and encourage the use of body cameras. The Senate bill is much weaker than the Democratic-backed House plan, which allows victims of misconduct to sue police, bans police chokeholds, bans no-knock warrants, and restricts the use of lethal force. Most important to human rights advocates, though, the House bill makes it easier to prosecute police officers and alters so-called qualified immunity to allow victims of police abuse to sue police officers. In an online discussion this week sponsored by The Appeal and Now This, Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts explained her opposition to qualified immunity for police officers. At the end of the day, if we believe that Black lives matter, then justice for the Black lives that we have been robbed of matters. And true justice would be all of these people, and we'll say their names as often as we can, although it is dizzying and traumatic, and we are drowning in an abyss of loss just trying to keep up. But Tony McDade and um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, real justice would be that they would still be alive. So there can never be true justice, but what there must be is accountability. And ending qualified immunity gets us closer to that. And that accountability does get us to healing. Now, you know, just to go back to the historical context of this, the right to sue state and local officials, including police, is a Reconstruction era law. It was passed to protect Black folks in the South who were experiencing significant backlash to the rights recently established in the 14th Amendment. Now, the legislation established this right, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, was also known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. So these protections were a direct response to rampant white supremacist violence against Black people simply existing and exercising their rights. So eliminating qualified immunity is important now, but it's important to every moment where Black folks feel the law's punishment before they ever do its protection. So when you have officers operating with callous disregard for human life, for Black lives, egregious misconduct, brutality, murder, operating with great impunity, without any retribution, without any consequence, without any justice. Now, is it encouraging when a police chief resigns or an officer is fired? Yes, but that still is injustice because no one is above the law, including law enforcement. And they should be prosecuted. Presley, a progressive member of Congress, noted that her position on qualified immunity is shared on the right by Representative Justin Amash, Libertarian of Michigan, who co-sponsored legislation with her to end the practice. (music) 
In other news from Capitol Hill on policing and militarization, Representative Barbara Lee unveiled a plan this week to cut up to $350 billion from the Pentagon, saying that, quote, redundant nuclear weapons, off-the-book spending accounts, and endless wars in the Middle East don't keep us safe, end quote. And activists for Palestinian rights are drawing analogies between cutting funding for militarized policing here in the U.S., and cutting U.S. funding for the Israeli military, as Israel states its plan to move forward with an illegal annexation of the West Bank as early as July 1st. Stephanie Fox, executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace, said that for years we've heard empty rhetoric from Democrats who say that annexation would be a red line. Yet here we are, and the failure of Congress to hold Israel accountable is overwhelming. Quote, Congress holds the purse string, she said, and it's time for us to take control so that we can fund health care, education, and safety for our communities, not racist policing in the U.S. and oppressive militaries abroad. Fox said her organization is opposing Senate Bill 3176, which will funnel more money to Israel. Also on human rights, immigrant rights advocates celebrated a major victory Thursday as the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the Trump administration cannot end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which allows up to 800,000 people to live and work in the United States. And labor and LGBTQ rights advocates celebrated Monday after the Supreme Court ruled that job discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or identity is prohibited under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In D.C., more than 15,000 people signed up to testify for a hearing on the budget of the Metropolitan Police Department. Only 90 people could be accommodated during the five-hour live virtual hearing. The remainder were allowed to submit written, oral, or video testimony, which was overwhelmingly opposed to the increase. More on the council hearing later in the show. And finally, in culture and media, you might have heard that Aunt Jemima and the show Cops are being retired, but you might not know that the right-wing Steve Bannon crowd may be getting a taxpayer-funded global platform. Donald Trump's newly appointed head of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, Michael Pack, was criticized Thursday for enacting what one former employee called a Wednesday night massacre, firing several career officials at the agency which oversees government-funded news broadcasters around the world, including Voice of America. Those fired are being replaced with allies of Trump and Steve Bannon, including former Breitbart news writer Jeffrey Shapiro as head of the Office of Cuba Broadcasting. The Trump administration on Wednesday abruptly withdrew from international negotiations over how best to tax the profits of multinational corporations such as U.S.-based tech giants Google and Amazon. European allies accused the White House of torpedoing years-long talks that were close to a resolution and threatening allies with sanctions if they tax these tech giants, which have been the only businesses continuing to rake in massive profits during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our friends of the show at the investigative journalism website, The Gray Zone, reported this week that Wikipedia is banning use of The Gray Zone as a news source. So I guess that means that's all the more reason to eliminate Wikipedia as a news source. 
Just saying. And the AFI Docs Documentary Festival underway through Sunday, June 21st, is a virtual festival this year and includes dozens of special programs and shorts and features, including free legacy cinema screenings, such as Nation Time Gary about the March 1972 National Black Political Convention in Gary, Indiana. I think I really want to check that out. And also Freedom on My Mind about the black activists and white allies who from 1961 to 1964 made the courageous trip to the South to register black voters. And Thomas O'Rourke has more about history in our history notes for this week. In addition to the Juneteenth celebration marking the final emancipation of enslaved Texans, on June 19, 1865, here are some other notable historical events from this week in history. On the morning of June 16, 1976, in the black township of Soweto in South Africa, schoolchildren began to demonstrate in protest in response to the introduction of the Afrikaans language as a principal instructional language in their schools. Because such instruction would limit their education and ability to overcome the country's racist system of apartheid, an estimated 20,000 students marched that day and were confronted with fierce police brutality and violence that killed at least 176, though possibly as many as 700 died. June 16th is now a public holiday in South Africa named Youth Day. On June 16th, 1918, Eugene V. Debs of the American Socialist Party gave his famous anti-war, anti-conscription speech that would send him to prison under the newly passed Sedition Act of 1918, intended to squash opposition to the United States' participation in World War I. His imprisonment sparked a nationwide movement to secure his release and debate about the free speech rights of wartime dissenters. On June 19, 1953, American communists Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed by electrocution at Sing Sing Prison in New York. They were convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage by allegedly providing information on the American atomic bomb building project to the Soviet Union during World War II. In a highly charged anti-communist and even anti-Semitic campaign, the Rosenbergs were both convicted despite Ethel's less explicit involvement and dubious intra-family betrayals by her sister and brother-in-law to mitigate their own involvement. This is Thomas O'Rourke for On the Ground Radio. Thank you, Thomas. And finally, anti-racism protesters are connecting with the Juneteenth holiday around the country. In D.C., there are several rallies and actions tonight. That's on June 19th. That will converge at Black Lives Matter Plaza in front of the White House. Information about actions for Juneteenth and all Juneteenth weekend and beyond is at 619.com. That's 619 spelled out S-I-X-N-I-N-E-T-E-N dot com. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Can you hear me? I'm 
Hi, my name is Felonis Floyd, and I'm the brother of George Floyd. On May 25th, 2020, my brother was tortured and murdered by four police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the United States. I thank you for holding this urgent meeting for the opportunity to speak to you today. My brother was unarmed and was accused of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. The entire incident showed my brother murdered was captured on camera. My family and I had to watch the last moments of his life when he was tortured to death, including the eight minutes and 46 seconds one officer kept his knee on my brother's neck. My brother begged the officer for his life, cried out for our mama who was already dead and said over and over again, I can't breathe. Even after my brother was unconscious, stopped moving and stopped breathing, the officers kept his knee on my brother's neck for another four minutes as many witnesses begged the officer to take his knee off my brother's neck and save his life. The officer showed no mercy, no humanity, and tortured my brother to death in the middle of the street in Minneapolis and with the crowd of witnesses watched and begging them to stop showing us black people the same lesson yet again. Black lives do not matter in the United States of America. None of the police officers were fired for murdering my brother until masses of people in the United States and around the world protested the injustice. When people dared to raise their voice and protest for my brother, they were tear gassed, run over with police vehicles. Several people lost eyes and suffered brain damage to rubber bullets. Peaceful protesters were shot and killed by police. Journalists were beaten and blinded when they tried to show the world the brutality happening at the protests. When people raised their voices to protest the treatment of black people in America, they are silenced. They are shot and killed. My brother, George Floyd, is one of the many black men and women that have been murdered by police in recent years. The sad truth is that the case is not unique. The way you saw my brother tortured and murdered on camera is the way black people are treated by police in America. You watched my brother die. That could have been me. I am my brother's keeper. You in the United Nations are your brothers and sisters keepers in America. And you have the power to help us get justice for my brother George Floyd. I'm asking you to help him. I'm asking you to help me. I'm asking you to help us black people in America. I hope that you will consider establishing an independent commission of inquiry to investigate police killings of black people in America and the violence used against peaceful protesters. This is On the Ground.
onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And this year, there's a spotlight on Juneteenth or June 19th, which marks the day when black people enslaved in Texas were freed two years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Not only was President Trump convinced to change the date of a planned campaign rally to June 20th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the date is being lifted up by the surging protest movement against racism, which is planning several actions here in D.C. and around the country to mark Juneteenth. Joining me to talk about this and related issues is our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author of more than three dozen books, including his latest, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, just before you joined us, we played that amazing testimony by Philanus Floyd, brother of George Floyd, uh, before the UN Human Rights Council. So let's start there in terms of the significance of his testimony. Well, it's profoundly significant, his testimony to the Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland. Obviously, he's walking in the footsteps of Paul Robeson, who filed the We Charge Genocide petition at the United Nations in 1951. And it's also striking to note that this profound maneuver by Mr. Floyd was spearheaded from Africa, from Burkina Faso in part, which was walking in the footsteps of one of their founders, speaking of the late Thomas Sankara, which encouraged and enticed the entire African Union to initiate this discussion at the United Nations on the question of, quote, systemic racism, unquote, in the United States and towards African people generally. Uh, Malcolm X, you may also recall in 1964, spoke of doing the same thing. Now, the implicit suggestion of this discussion at the United Nations is that the United States itself is unable to resolve this knotty question of systemic racism on its own and needs global intervention. It opens the door to sanctions on the United States because of systemic racism. Now, keep in mind that as we speak today, uh, former U.S. President George W. Bush and former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger are wary of traveling to certain countries overseas for fear of being detained, like Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet was detained in London for weeks on end as a result of a writ filed by the Spanish magistrate in English courts because of Mr. Pinochet's transgressions against Spanish citizens in Chile where he was the dictator for years. Uh, it's very striking to note that I'm sure that some are keeping a careful eye on the travel agenda of the 45th U.S. president and perhaps are arranging for him to meet a similar fate, that is to say, Agent Orange in an orange jumpsuit, perhaps in the International Criminal Court, where he is now seeking to impose sanctions. I was also struck this week by a report from the Equal Justice Initiative about their research finding that more than 2,000 black people were lynched from 1865 to 1877. And I was really struck by their summary 
Uh, and I think this is a quote from Brian Stevenson, basically saying that it is only because we gave into this lawlessness and abandoned the rule of law and decided that these constitutional amendments would not be enforced. And that's during Reconstruction, that it was possible to have nearly a century of racial terror. So thinking about people in Texas, even after Juneteenth, being forced to uh, remain in an enslaved position. And one of the examples they gave in the study was two white men who set a man on fire, a black man on fire, simply because they wanted to see him like hop around for their entertainment as he was burning. So these type of grotesque, you know, acts, lynchings were, were just wanton, you know, so anyway, I, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that study. I don't think we'll ever know the figure in terms of how many people were lynched in the latter part of the 19th century. I assume that the Equal Justice Initiative, that they were pouring over newspaper records. But keep in mind that newspaper records do not contain every particular instance of a lynching that took place. But I think it's appropriate on Juneteenth to try to connect the carnage that we see in the streets of Minneapolis, for example, and the repetitive lynching of black men in particular, to connect that to slavery. Uh, That is to say that we haven't had an accounting of slavery and its toxic impact. We haven't connected the tragedies of today with the fact that black life was cheapened during slavery, that black, black life was degraded during slavery. So, It's appropriate on Juneteenth to have this kind of discussion to try to connect the past to the present. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. With many bringing demands to dismantle policing in the district as we know it directly to the ears of the D.C. Council, 90 out of the 500 people who submitted to testify were able to give their testimony at Monday's hearing on the city's police budget before the Committee on Judiciary and Public Safety. The number of citizens giving testimony this year amidst the momentum generated by calls for accountability in the wake of the killing of George Floyd is up from just 22 people giving testimony at last year's police budget hearing. Residents of all eight wards called on the council to put action behind claims to support the movement. From their own lives and their observations of the neighborhoods where they live, They cited police misconduct 
and the ineffectiveness of police violence in combating crime as reasons why funding Mayor Bowser proposes be allocated to the Metropolitan Police Department be reallocated and reinvested in community supports. Two of the residents who came before the council with witness were Jahi Wise and Nia Evans. Yes, good afternoon, Councilmember Allen and other members of the committee. Uh, my name is Jahi Wise. I'm a resident of Brightwood uh, in Ward 4. Um, to begin, for the record, I testify in solidarity with the families of Jeff Price, Terrence Sterling, Marquise Alston, Daquan Young, and the many others who have experienced the trauma of police violence. Also, for the record, I testify in solidarity with the thousands of youth leaders, organizers, and neighbors whose direct actions over the last two weeks created the imperative for this hearing to take place. As drafted, the proposed FY 2021 budget would increase spending on policing while cutting spending on programs relating to community safety, mental health, and housing. Programs that are absolutely critical to low-income black and brown families who are reeling from the pandemic, the subsequent economic collapse, and decades of systematic racialized divestment. The distribution of resources in the proposed FY 2021 budget is unacceptable. Further, the proposed MPD budget continues to freight MPD with functions, for example, social work, public health outreach, and youth development, which are far outside of their core crime prevention function. Accordingly, I testify in support of the following three policy proposals. First, reversing the proposed MPD budget increase to fully fund community-centered approaches to violence prevention, including but not limited to reversing proposed cuts to the violence interrupter programs and to community and school-based behavioral, behavioral health services. Second, investing the funds associated with MPD's contract with DCPS in social emotional health services and academic supports for students. It is absolutely unconscionable that the current social worker to student ratio in high need schools is nearly four times the recommended national ratio. No DCPS school should have an SRO and not also have a nurse, a counselor, and a social worker. Third, adopting some of the revenue raising proposals of the DC Fiscal Policy Institute, Fair Budget Coalition, and others. The revenue raised from such policy proposals should be used to fully fund permanent supportive housing programs and sorely needed repairs to public housing. This body must exercise the courage to craft a budget that reflects the values of our community as articulated by residents in the streets over the last two weeks. A budget that charts a course away from the failed policing strategies of the past towards a safer, fairer, and racially just community. I yield the balance of my time. Hi, my name is Nia Evans. I was born in DC. My family and I own a home at the corner of 14th and Corcoran Street in Ward 2, very near the where the protesters were attacked and kettled by police officers on 15th and Swan Street in the last few weeks. Simply put, I'm disgusted by the actions of MPD in every way and the complicity of the council for allowing them to act this way for so long. They've acted illegally, ignored the law, harmed black and brown residents and children, engaged in sexual misconduct and abuse, cost the city millions in settlements. Chief Newsom alone has a long history of abuse and brutality. He should have never been hired. Simply put, the Metropolitan Police Department does not create safety. They are agents of violence and harm. As a result, I'm calling for the council to defund the Metropolitan Police Department and for Chief Newsom to, res to resign. As an education advocate in DC, I've worked with black girls of all ages to close the school to prison pipeline. They've told me terrible stories about police abuse and misconducts. 
police officers stopping them at the school door, refusing to allow them to go to school because they're wearing the wrong color pants or shoes. Police demanding that they remove items of clothing, like sweaters or head wraps, because they think they're out of dress code. Children are being over-policed, pushed out, and criminalized by police every single day. This behavior is unacceptable, and counsel, it is on your hands. It must stop now. The recent weak, inadequate police reform bill is not sufficient in any way, shape, or form. Saying Black Lives Matter or praising empty performative gestures while ignoring our demands and needs is also not the answer. We must defund the police and spend the money on things that actually make our community safer. Schools, healthcare, housing, mental health services, violence interruption programs. I'm calling on the DC Council to be on the right side of history and to make data-driven decisions. The data is clear, MPD is failing, it's harming citizens, citizens, it breeds a culture of violence and racism that cannot be reformed. I'm asking for you to stand with DC residents who are being abused and brutalized and who deserve far better. Listen to Black Swan Academy, BYP 100, Black Lives Matter DC. Defund MPD, remove them from DC schools, traditional and charter schools now. I'm asking you to reject the mayor's budget and propose increase to MPD and invest in community driven safety supports and dedicate more time to hearing from citizens. This is an extraordinary time. I appreciate the work that's been done to give us this extra space. We need more. Please be on the right side of history. Thank you. The council will vote on the upcoming police budget on June 25th. For now, grassroots campaigns from organizations and collectives across the district have succeeded in their efforts to galvanize powerful voices on defunding MPD for them to consider. From Northeast DC, this is Chantal James. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And it's the third week in June 2020, time for the F Word, our monthly segment dedicated to exploring fascism. And listeners know that for more than five years now, we have retained as a touchstone for this series the statement from 1960s revolutionary George Jackson, who defined fascism as the complete control of the state by monopoly capital. He said that fascism is the last stage of capitalism in the heart of the U.S. imperial center, where the relationship between the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. And so keeping the monopoly capital in mind, I was drawn to the title of an essay. The subject line in the email said, Is a belief in capitalism required to be truly American? And it was written by my guest this month, Erica Ramirez, Director of Applied Research for Auburn Seminary in New York City. In that capacity, she directs a project called The Future Story of America, which includes future story briefings, including this essay on capitalism, so that faith leaders can engage their congregations around issues of social justice in the United States. Welcome to On the Ground, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, as I just said, I was so intrigued by the essay because we are living in this time when 
first of all, a self-declared socialist, Bernie Sanders, was on his way to winning the Democratic nomination before his candidacy mm-hmm. was squashed. And so certainly his enthusiastic crowds obviously don't believe that to be a capitalist is to be a true American. But also we are in this moment when monopoly capitalism, global capitalism is totally failing to meet the public need during this crisis of pandemic. So I'm wondering how you see this health and economic crisis in the U.S. impacting the views of Americans toward capitalism. Given what we've seen from the Bernie Sanders campaign, what people are undoubtedly seeing in the way that the pandemic has been unequally experienced by the poor and by different racial groups, Americans are at the point of willingness to rethink the nation's relationship to capitalism, even as they might be feeling, Esther, ambivalent about being American. So I would point to protests right now about George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor's deaths, the Black Lives Matter protests, as a space where we can hear a lot of ambivalence over what America, what is the value of being American or what is the value of America sometimes when you look at the media circulating in these spaces, there's a lot of negativity around the history of America, I I think, well, rightly so. And so the question about being loyal to capitalism because you are American is facing challenges on both fronts because people do not feel very loyal to what America stands for at this point. So it's actually a, a tremendous opportunity for renegotiation which I think is what we're seeing happening in public discourse. Bernie Sanders' campaign is, I think, illustrative of an amazing willingness to rethink what socialism means. Of course, he's a democratic socialist. And to look again at whether it really is antithetical to being American. I would point out to you, though, that in my own research, I have found that from 1900 to maybe 1915, it was not considered antithetical to be socialist and American, and including religious groups, groups that we think of now as strident capitalists like evangelicals. When I think about the current protest movement and even other protest movements in our recent past, like the Occupy movement, it occurs to me that some people are experiencing fascism under capitalism. So that when you talk about police murder, police brutality, the people who lived under the authoritarian, you know, terror of Jim Crow, what the Native Americans experienced in terms of massacre, and that not everyone is experiencing uh, capitalism in the same way. In addition to the income inequality that we know about, there's the social inequality. So when you look at your study, for example, that 79% of Republicans view allegiance to capitalism as substantially a part of American identity, but only 46% of Democrats do. We know the Democratic Party is a lot more diverse in terms of people of color who have experienced a different type of capitalism and have experienced what I'm saying, fascism under capitalism. So I'm wondering, you know, what kind of feedback have you received from the article? Do people recognize capitalism's, you know, global character and and how, you know, companies that people think of as American really aren't really American. They're like kind of transnational and global, as you talk about. And some aren't even paying taxes here to support the infrastructure that allow them to grow. I think Amazon's not paying any taxes. Like, you know, and so. 
That's right. I think of, of one way that I could give a concrete answer to this is even when, for instance, people who are on the religious left, when they want to talk about why we should do right by immigrants who are in this nation, they'll often appeal to justice or mercy as part of one or another of the major religious traditions ethics. And you will rarely actually see an argument from economics. So you precisely said what will be mentioned, which is actually a lot of immigrants who are here pay taxes. But what you won't see is an appeal to the transnational flow of capital that pushes immigration or forces immigration or we could say relies on immigration, like migrant labor forces, and how that plays into our, for instance, our gross domestic product, right? So I think, no, it's on the outer limits of people's thinking around why we need to think about, for instance, figures like immigrants whom we are sympathetic to, why we need to think about them as in a system versus just individual characters who deserve our goodwill. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And to your point about people who are experiencing fascism within transnational capitalism, I think you're undoubtedly correct. And I think that that's a very perceptive way of looking at, for instance, discourse around looting, which has come up in media coverage of the recent protests or the still ongoing protests. Looting is a notion that the destruction of public property or the destruction of commerce, right, commercial property, somehow uh, requires police intervention, and it triggers a set of associations for people who are being asked to evaluate what the tenor, the content, and the end goals of protests are. And often, you'll see looting referred to as a form of violence, when in fact, violence is a word that I think should be restricted to the harm of living things. And breaking windows, for instance, I think is, it's a misnomer to call it violence. But if you live in a, as you're saying, a fascist capitalist system, right, where we're going to protect commerce, we're going to protect the ability to create and move capital. I think that we are being asked as citizens to see that as a valid task. It's valid for police to use batons or tear gas to and, and to mistreat protesters on the suggestion that they have done some sort of harm to commerce mm. or property. Mm. Of course, there were all these analysis or coming out of that, and, and especially during the time that we're living in right now, where people are seeing banks and corporations loot the U.S. Treasury. And people are saying, well, no, uh, this country was, uh, I think it was Tamika Mallory of the National Action Network. People, the Native Americans were looted, you know. You know, mm-hmm. African Americans mm-hmm. were looted of our labor and our wealth. And so it really brought out at this time of really looting on a really massive level what the real looting is. <laughs> So I'm glad that you kind of broke it down in, in, other, in other types of ways that, that we can understand. So we're finding ourselves living in this time when corporations are playing, I think, the biggest role ever in directing policy, government policy. And when we look at the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, headed by our former coal lobbyist, you know, our education department headed by, uh, 
you know, someone who is a student loan predator, mass incarceration, largely directed by these private prisons. And of course, the war economy directed by these defense contractors. And, you know, in this COVID crisis, large corporations and banks, you know, are the biggest recipients so far of pandemic relief. And this week, Trump and his Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, are saying that American taxpayers have no right to know what corporations receive $5 trillion in public funds. So I think your article struck me so much, so, so brilliant, because it really talked about global capitalism. So can you tell us more about the relationship of this new global capitalism and what's happening to us right now? What I wanted to do with that article is to show people the scale, the the millions and billions of dollars that go missing in our economy because big business knows how to use certain countries as, in this case, Ireland as tax havens. And the difficulty with which any one nation would potentially try to hold a big transnational corporation accountable. One of the difficulties, and maybe one of the key ones, is that different nations are clearly in the, at this place at this point in time in competition with one another for the dollars that transnational capital directs. So Ireland sees itself at an advantage if it can effectively lower the tax rate that Apple pays lower than nearly anywhere else, right? Like, so it's trying to keep its hand on Apple dollars by diminishing what it will require from Apple to pay to them, right? right? So, and in such a situation, other countries like, well, the UK, Germany, the US, who also have some aspect of Apple in their economy, right, driving some of their economy, they have a really hard time holding Apple accountable because the nations are essentially in some sort of competition. So if you're asking about transnational capital and what effect it has on the nation, it's a really destructive effect because we all purchase into Apple. Like we all, I meant, I meant, you know, Americans do a lot of purchasing into Apple but we don't see a reasonable return on those dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and of course, what you're saying reminds me of the fact that what I consider the U.S. exporting fascism to other countries like Latin America, for example, that it is the multinational corporation like United Fruit and other other corporations that are a fortress for fascism in those countries throughout Central and South America in terms of supporting these really vicious right-wing dictatorships that, you know, killed millions of people um, from Chile, I agree. you know, all the way up to El Salvador, Guatemala. But this is Esther Averam on, on the ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm going to take a brief break and we'll be right back.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverum, and I'm in conversation with Erica Ramirez, Director of Applied Research for Auburn Seminary in New York City, about her recent fascinating article, Is a Belief in Capitalism Required to be Truly American? And so we're kind of using that as a jumping off point for this month's episode of The F Word when we talk about fascism. And before the break, Erica, we were just talking about global capitalism, transnational capitalism. And I, I want to kind of finish up because I know that we don't have a lot, a lot more time. Um, switch back to state violence. And this is a topic on our minds. Uh, last week on our show, we ended our conversation with historian Gerald Horn, just talking about how the current protest movement is a bulwark against the consolidation of fascism in the United States. And what we were talking about is, you know, just as people are skeptical of the need for capitalism right now, you know, this, this movement is pointing to the utility of state violence, you know, in the, in the kind of naked repression here in the U S and other, and, and in other countries to repress people and to um, prop up capitalism. So, and I I suppose we were, we left the conversation with the question about, you know, it doesn't seem possible to go back to business as usual in the neoliberal order after this. And, and the, the movement is kind of asking us a question, which way are we are going to go? Are we going to go back to this neoliberal order that can prop up a fascism under capitalism? Or are we going to move toward a more equitable society or what we, what we consider a socialism? So what are your ideas about that in terms of the protest movement and state violence? Sure. I think the protest movement do stand a chance, and not all protest movements, I think, do, stand a chance of making um, or spurring real change in the direction of our country. And I think one of the clearest ways that that can happen is for them, for the protest movement, to have a clear agenda or getting legislative change. And I think we just saw was yesterday, I think, that President Trump was trying to respond to protests by saying that he supported legislation that tries to limit, for instance, the kind of police who can be on the force if there are so many uh, complaints against a police person. Basically, he's talking about some measure of police reform. And while I can anticipate that protesters are going to fail, and rightly so, that this is just symbolic, that this is maybe not a real intent to change policing, I don't think President Trump would be at the point of even talking about this without the pressure from the protests. And I think it's been really clear that protesters are signaling a willingness and a desire for police departments to be defunded. And you've seen some success already in, in Minneapolis. I think I read something similar being discussed in Seattle. And so what you're seeing is a, a complicated web of interrelated forms of government, right? You've got city-level government, state, and federal level, and different pressure points on each. And it makes sense that um, cities and their mayors and their city councils would be sort of quicker to respond to actual protests in their territories, right, in their cities. So my my answer would be yes, I do think that we're headed in a different direction because you're already seeing completely new ideas being taken up, not just by protesters, 
but by city councils, mayors, and you're seeing a new kind of discourse come out of even this president. I think we need to see some changes in Congress, and I think we need to see, continue to put pressure on the president going into this next election cycle. I think the will is there. The kinds of people who are calling for attention to the issues that Black Lives Matter as a movement has raised, it's been completely stunning to me, Esther. I've seen people that are, are really, you would think of in other any other senses, uh, traditional conservatives who are disgusted with videos that they've seen, who feel just called to account. They feel their consciences are disturbed. So I think that there is actually, the will of the people is clear here. There's the will for reform. Now, the messaging is interesting. I think that some of those same people would be not as engaged in messages like defund the police, but defund the police is not what it sounds like necessarily. It's straightforward. They are really calling for funding to be routed elsewhere, right? So I think we'll see how much the popular will can get behind that and whether, and that's only one version of this question. Sometimes protesters and leadership are able to achieve things that, that don't rely on a coalescing of popular will in the moment. So I do think it's possible for us to be heading in a new direction where people are really rethinking the role of police. And as you're saying, the role of police in upholding capitalism and because you've seen a lot of people support the protesters in spite of the fact that the media is to a faulty degree covering, uh, you know, broken windows or I think uh, Wendy's was set on fire. Those things are getting outsized coverage, but yet the general will of, I think, people in America is still to support the goals of the Black Lives Matters movement. Yeah. it does seem to me that a shift in our uh, our scales of importance is possible. Like, what is po- what is more important, people or commerce? What is more important, people or property? But it mm. is a reckoning, right? It's a reckoning. It's forcing a renovation of our priorities. And police think are not victims of this reckoning, <laughs> but they are they are implicated. They are sort of right at the nexus of how those things work, of how our priorities as a society work, which is why there's so much attention to them now. And of course, another range of discussions that could come into play here for us, Esther, is the role of police in keeping for-profit prisons profitable, right? So the, another way of looking at what, you know, how do police uphold America as a capitalist society. Well, there's the protection of business, the protection of commercial property, right? But then there's also our for-profit prison system that directly relies on police to supply them prisoners to exploit labor from. So I think, yeah, it's a moment for rethinking police, the role of police. And I think the one of the boons of this moment is that there's already thought leadership on where those funds really need to go. They need to go back to education. They need to go into social work. They need to go into services that are really going to serve uh, different municipalities. And you, what you said before about whether the people have a right to know where trillions of dollars are going, we absolutely have a right to know. So there's work to be done on you know, electing officials that don't um, trade in that kind of authoritarian opacity.
you know, I could talk to you for five more hours, right? <laughs> yeah, and I so appreciate you taking the time. But I think I have to leave it there. I've been speaking with Erica Ramirez, Director of Applied Research for Auburn Seminary in New York City. In that capacity, she directs a project called Future Story of America, which includes future story briefings. And those briefings included the essay we've been discussing today. Is a belief in capitalism required to be truly American? Thank you for joining me today, Erica. Thank you, Esther. Good luck in your work. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Thomas O'Rourke, and Gerald Horn. And thanks to all of youth for checking out the show and those who are checking out our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam. That's On the Ground W, Esther Averam. You, of course, you can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And if you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And you can support us on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. The music we played this hour included the Chester Children's Choir, I Still Can't Breathe, Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers, Rain Dance, and Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson, who pay reparations for my soul. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.